Good morning. And to those of you who are joining us online, good morning. My name is Michael. I'm on staff here if you haven't met me before or seen me. Um, hold on, I just got to get my bearings. We've got some technology issues this morning, so if something goes awry, primarily it'd be for you who are online. We apologize. We're doing our best. Uh, we're going to start in Matthew 22, if you'd like to turn there. And I do want to acknowledge, uh, I did have to text Jeremy and waffle back and forth on it. Um, sometimes when you spend time in a text, you just want to communicate everything, so that takes lots of time. And then after you spend a little bit more time with it, you think, okay, I've got a good handle on this. But then you realize as you're progressing through that you've eventually shed so much that you can keep track, but most likely people who are trying to follow can't. And so uh, that was my interest in modifying things. And I really do appreciate the flexibility that uh, Jeremy has provided me with to say, hey, I think I'm going to need another week. So originally we were planning on being in Ephesians 4, but uh, I tend to be kind of a try to big idea, merge things together in my mind type of person. And I thought, okay, before I go there, I'd really like to deal with what seems to me like a really helpful concept or idea that just builds up and provides this support underneath Ephesians 4 before I go there. And as I've said many times in the past, we in Christianity, we love to just have people tell us, okay, here's the one, the two, the three that you need to do. And sometimes we do so that we neglect just taking time to stop and dwell on what God has done. I've said it before, I'll say it many times, even in the book of Ephesians, Paul deals with what we know as three chapters of gospel before he moves on to how we need to change in light of that. And it is from understanding who God is and how he cares for us that we have this ability to change. It's his power that works in us because we view and see his good love for us. And so today I'm going to be dealing with the moral imperative of the greatest commandment. And my goal is to take that concept and to whittle it down and put it into a small, bite-sized idea, and that is that in doing church, we are fulfilling the greatest commandment. We are responding to the moral imperative of the greatest commandment. And there's going to be some, maybe a little bit of pressure pressed against some of you, and so as I'm applying pressure, I want there to be two prefaces. The first is this. The first is that I'm new, and so take that pressure uh, with a grain of salt. So this is not me saying, uh, as somebody who's been your shepherd for a long time, as someone who's not even yet fully a shepherd here, this is me saying, just be mindful of this and maybe take an outsider's perspective. But if it hurts, come talk to me afterwards, because uh, I'm not intending to do so. And the second thing is that while I'm pushing on you the moral imperative, I just want to remind you that Jesus says in Matthew 11, that his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. And so what I'm intending to push against a little bit is not intended to be a yoke of burden or of slavery, but it's something that leads to hope and joy and peace because that's what Jesus provides. And so here I am peddling, hopefully, what Jesus provides, and I want that to be in line with that. So we're in Matthew 22, brief two-week sermon series called COVID Church with a highlight on the exclamation point. How do we do church with COVID going on. And we've had to change a lot of plans for the fall. Lots of our brothers and sisters in different churches are doing so. There are churches that aren't yet meeting to the extent that we are that are in this area because of the restrictions. There are other churches that can't meet at all because of certain stipulations. There are some churches that are meeting together and it's kind of the full deal. Um, 
for them anyways, but for us, it's modified. And so how do we do church knowing that we have to modify and change so much of what we have done in the past? And it has to look something very different than what it has been previously. Well, this is a good time. It's like a fork in the road to stop and to evaluate what is worth pursuing. Why are we doing the things that we do? And is what we filled our time with in the past the why or is it the what? And Jeremy talked a little bit about that in weeks past. The why is the motivation. It's what drives us. The what, that changes. That, that can be very different. Uh, when you're not yet married and you're thinking about, well, from a man's perspective, you're thinking about dating a woman. Dating looks very different than when you have three kids and COVID's going on uh, and the babysitter is not available, or at least if it is, it's the grandpa and he's been taxed too often. And so the why is love your wife. Well, that's the, the how I should say, but why is that God wants me to, and here's why, but the how looks very different. And sometimes the what itself looks different too. And so we do ministries. We do Awana. We do adult discipleship hour. Uh, we have other ways that we gather together. And those right now are pushed off to the side because of restrictions, but we can still do ministry. And I sent out a letter to everybody talking about this plan that I had been working on that uh, Jeremy and the elders had asked me to put some energy into. And in there, I made reference to this idea that COVID is actually going to help us pull back. It's forcing a fork in the road. It's causing us to reevaluate and say, why do we do the things that we do? How can we take the same mentality that we have in doing something like Awana or doing something like Adult Discipleship Hour? And how can we, with the desire, morph it into something different? And I said in the letter that we can actually get closer, hopefully, to the biblical ideal. And that is because here in America, over the years, church has become kind of a, you get served and the people up here do the work. But in the Bible, that idea isn't there. The idea is that everybody is doing the work. I mean, to think that I can do ministry for you in your context is ridiculous. Number one, because I can't be all things to all men and be everywhere at all times. And also because God has equipped you in ways that he has not equipped me. I mean, it's humorous to think that I'd be able to do some of the things that some of you can do. I'm just not made that way. And even if I were to try, I would not do a good job of it. God has placed you in contexts and he has enabled you to become a person who proclaims his glory in that context. And I can't do that. And so, or nor can anybody else. And when I say up front, I just don't mean the people up here, but I mean typically how we would think the people who are the paid or the super spiritual, which is not true at all, or those who are recognized as leaders. Really, it's everybody who does ministry. And so COVID is pulling back all of the excess. There's a really well-known book, very helpful. If you want to read about it, it's called The Trellis and the Vine. So if you think about a trellis, which is the support structure, and you think about the vine, a lot of times we built the support structure hoping that the vine will fill, but what if instead we let the vine do its job and grow and we just made the trellis go wherever the vine was? What if it wasn't so much about the structure and it was instead more about how God was moving and working and how he had equipped certain people in a certain context? And so that's really what I'm speaking to this morning. So again, starting with the greatest commandment and then working my way down. And for those I said I was going to press into, here it comes, just one little two-minute section. Here's me pressing into you, okay? So if you call Memorial Baptist Church home, either through membership or because you've been a part of the church for a while, and you have disengaged because you've been forced to through COVID, and your re-engagement has been slow in coming, I'm pressing against you a little bit. 
And let me be clear, I'm not defining re-engagement by being here. Because there are people who either should not be here or can't be here. And I want to recognize that. Even if we had all people able to come because they were not in high risk, we would be limited because of the size of how many people we can have in here, the capacity. So I'm not speaking to that. I'm not saying that you show your love for Jesus by whether or not you come to church. I'm actually pushing against that concept. If you have limited your engagement, if you are here, or if you observe to just Sunday morning, I'm pressing against you a little bit here. If you are a part of a small group and your small, small group's been put on hold and it can continue, albeit not in the friendliest way, because we're all tired of Zoom meetings, I'm pressing into you a little bit here. If your involvement has been limited to tuning in on Sunday morning or being here and you're maintaining that you're trying to keep social distancing, but you're going socially shopping or you're going out to restaurants, I'm pressing against you a little bit here. And if you are able to work either in person or remotely and you're continuing to work, I'm pressing against you if you've disengaged and you have not yet re-engaged as far as you can. So if you've pulled back, I'm inviting you to, to come back in and to be a part of ministry here. And in fact, I'm asking you because this fall, ministry relies on you in ways that it hasn't before. We need you to be the church with us. And I'm not saying that you haven't been, but some of us maybe, I mean, I've felt it. When we couldn't come and Jeremy was doing the thing and I didn't have to be here for anything, I remember saying to him, I mean, it's kind of like I get a three-day weekend because I take Friday and Saturday off and now I don't have to be here on Sunday. Yeah, I tune in, but that's not the same. And I mean, usually when you sign up for ministry, you don't get weekends. And so it was weird. And I was at the end thinking, okay, I got to go back to it again. And Libby and I were talking, or Libby was talking with one of our neighbors, and she was acknowledging, because they're at a church where they haven't gathered back together yet, she was acknowledging how nice it is to settle into a Saturday and a Sunday with not a lot of interruptions. And so I'm, I'm pushing against something that's in me and that's in our neighbors that we're talking with and, and probably that's in you as well. So there's my little spiel. I'm stepping off the soapbox. But remember, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. Okay, big picture. Let's, let's draw a picture or let's, uh, let's work together. I'm dealing with circles here. I'm going large and then into small concentric style. So we're in Matthew 22. We're looking at verse 34. The Pharisees show up on the scene. They're trying to test Jesus. Matthew 22 is this back and forth between the, the leaders of Israel and Jesus. And he's showing that he is who he says he is. And he really does have the good stuff. And they ask him a question. What's the greatest commandment? And many people had been asked this question in the past. Many famous uh, rabbis. And Jesus offers his answer. He says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And then he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul? Because it's not external obedience. He's actually pushing against it just looking external. It's to value him because you see he, he is worth more than anything else. This is what Jesus is calling all people to when they question him and he provides the answer. He's saying everything that you do is about this one thing, loving God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. 
Just take a moment and think about eating a piece of cheesecake. For two different reasons, I can't eat cheesecake because of dairy and because of gluten. Well, actually three, because there's other things I can't eat in there too, but I love New York cheesecake. And when you put a little bit of the strawberry goop on top, it's so good. I mean, just imagine taking a bite of that. When you take a bite of whatever your favorite is, for me, it'd be New York cheesecake with strawberries on top. Part of the enjoyment of that is you, you have to talk about it. And that's the type of love that God wants. He wants love that just, it overflows into, I just, it's just, it's so great. I, let me just tell you how good it is. The cheese, it's, the cake is so smooth. And then the way that it plays off of, okay, I'm making some of you drool, so I'll stop right there. Okay. So that's the greatest commandment. You are to cherish and love God more than anything else. But then he adds something extra. He adds and he says that there's a second that's like it, and that is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how are you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving yourself, because that's implied in the second, and loving your neighbor like you love yourself? Well, what if in loving God, you found so much satisfaction that that had to overflow. That cheesecake is so good, I have to share with others. Can I tell you about cheesecake? The Porto family um, has uh, planted a number of tomato plants back there, an overabundance, and that's because when I grew up, we had a large garden in the back and we would can tomato sauce every single year in the realm of hundreds of quarts of sauce because we ate that much pasta, which might be why I have problems with gluten, but that's a side. So, Lots of tomato plants. I love tomatoes, fresh tomatoes, and I love fresh tomato sauce. I have probably already offered to at least half of the people here that if they want some tomatoes, they can go into the garden and go get tomatoes because my enjoyment of tomatoes is in part satisfied and fulfilled when other people hear about it and when they get to enjoy eating tomatoes as well. The same thing is true about the second commandment, which is like the first. In enjoying God, we find him so satisfying that we can't help but tell other people about his goodness because we want them to experience what he has done for us. The heart that seeks to know God and be satisfied in him is also satisfied in telling others about the goodness that he is. Then Jesus goes one step further and he says, on these two these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So there's the greatest commandment. And Jesus is saying, in the greatest commandment, we find you could place every one of the 613 commandments that the Jews recognize in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets. All of them, if there was a flow chart, they would all find their way back to this one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the moral imperative. This is the moral commandment that every human being is held accountable for. When we speak of salvation and damnation, this is it. This is what people are evaluated on. They're not evaluated on keeping one thing versus the other. It's can they love God with everything in their being? And they can't. But the moral imperative is still there. God provides a way, but the push that's behind it still exists, even though he paves a way through salvation for people. And that's what I'm dealing with this morning. So what if we were to go to the Ten Commandments? And what if we were to say, okay, does that work? Jesus says that all the law and the prophets fit underneath this. Can we take the Ten Commandments? Pretty well recognized in Judaism, in Christianity. 
as really important, referred back to often. So here are the Ten Commandments. The first four are recognized pretty well as fitting underneath this idea of loving God. And the last six are recognized as how we love or relate to one another. So yes, Jesus is correct. No surprise there. But everything in the Old Testament points back, the Ten Commandments point back to this one law, this one moral imperative, love God more than anything else. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to push in against and say, we have an obligation. So I'm going big. This is capturing everybody. If you are a human being and you are alive on this earth, you have a moral obligation to love God. And for those who've gathered, I'm going to go a little bit further. And now I'm going to say, what about the Great Commission? Because the Great Commission deals with people who say, yes, that's me. I want Jesus. I want what he provides. I'm going to follow him. I want to be one of his. This is the Great Commission. Here's Jesus. He's getting ready to leave. If you want to turn there, it's Matthew 28. I would encourage you to do so. And he is resurrected in Matthew 28. They find out that he has come back to life, and then he provides this great commission in closing. And this is Matthew's way of bringing his story of Jesus' life to an end. And just think about somebody who's getting ready to give you a commencement speech and send you on your way after a couple years of college. Or maybe you are in the process of uh, embarking on parenthood, and your parent's sitting down with you, and your baby's just been born or on the verge of being born, and they, they give you a, a talk. This is like that talk. He's getting ready to leave and he's giving them the last bit. And he says, if you follow with me in 16, well, he doesn't say this part, but the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him, them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, if Jesus says that all commands find their fulfillment or can be traced back to the greatest command, which is twofold, love God and love others, it would make sense. We should find love God, and love others in his final talk before he ascends to heaven. So, there they are. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe. How am I deciding that these are love God and love others? Well, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, which can only mean one thing. He's it. He is God, fully and completely. God would not give his authority to any other. He says that. He will not do that. And so, in going, you make disciples. And the way that you show you love is that you obey. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. And so, them going and making disciples, that's an outward example. That's the way that they practically live out loving God. By obeying. Not because they have to but because they get to, because he has provided so much for them. I mean, they just can't help but overflow by obeying what he does. I mean, yes, if, if your yoke is easy and your burden is light and you say go, that means that that provides for me joy more than I have now. And so I will go. Second, teach to them to observe all I have commanded them. That is Jesus saying, 
love other people. I chose Philippians 1.21 because there Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And wouldn't that be a perspective that we would love not only for ourselves to have, but for others to have? If I just take a moment and I think through a dozen people, I know people who have lost loved ones, who haven't been able to attend funerals because of what's going on. I know people who are being um, really heavily picked on during this time. And when I say picked on, it's kind of a a simple word, but I mean far more than that. Um, I know people who have lost jobs because of what's happening. I know people whose retirements have been deeply affected because of this. I know people who have gone through significant difficulty, loss of home. Wouldn't it be great if we could show people and tell them about someone who is so satisfying that even in the midst of this difficulty, we can still say he's good? When I had to, well, when we had to leave Massachusetts, as I've shared with you, and come back home, One thing that was so beautiful about that time is that I learned about God's worth. And I learned that even in the midst of deep failure and deep sorrow and going thousands of dollars under because of having to turn a house quickly and uprooting a family and moving thousands of miles away, well, just really just 1,000, I learned how valuable God was. I learned that he is so good. Wouldn't it be great to be able to take to people a message that says, Man, retirement is a lot, but it's not everything. And losing a loved one, that's serious, but you will learn that God provides even in the midst of the worst that we go through and the physical pain that you're enduring. It is terrible. Let me tell you about a man who went through so much pain and still counted his pain worthy because of the joy that he found at the end of that path of pain. So we see here in what Jesus says in the Great Commission, we see Yes, love God and love others. But we could actually go a step further. This is like the cherry on top bit. Jesus says in Matthew 5, why don't you go ahead and turn there, that he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So here's Matthew writing his take on Jesus' life. And of course, He's going to show how his rabbi teaches and deals with the Old Testament. That's one of his purposes in doing so. And in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus dealing with various parts of the Old Testament law and prophets. Guess what? We find the Ten Commandments, not all of them, but we find them in here, which makes sense because they deal with love God and love others. Just notice as we look through these, I'll point them out to you. So here's the Ten Commandments laid over this section. Look with me at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Well, there's do not murder. And Jesus says it actually goes beyond just the external And it deals with the internal because this is an issue of loving God and loving others. Jump down to the next section. Look at 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There it is. Do not commit adultery. 
Jesus is dealing with the same concepts and ideas. Go down to verse 31. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm putting this one as do not covet. And the reason I'm doing so is because just like today, back then, people would divorce flippantly because they did not like what they had in life, which comes down to an issue of dissatisfaction. I'm not trying to be harsh or rude to people who've walked through divorce. I know it's very complex. My parents walked through it. I know it's a very difficult issue. I'm just trying to get at the core of the heart motive that seems to be tied to it a lot of times. Not all the time, but a lot of times. It's an issue of not being satisfied with what God has provided and desiring what others have. That's why, at least I'm taking it, when he says in verse 32, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery because they're taking something that really belongs to their neighbor. And that's an issue of don't covet, don't take your neighbors, don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or your neighbor's ox, as it says in the Ten Commandments. We could go even another step further. I'm going to put it up on the screen already, but oaths in verse 34 and 35. Um, You shall not swear falsely, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth. And really at the core of um, not taking God's name in vain is not the avoidance of the phrase, oh my God. It is taking who God is and his recognized name, and it is reducing it or diminishing it into something lesser than what it is. And when you take an oath and you stake your name on the throne of heaven, that is a way of violating this commandment of not making God's name common. Because the way you love God is that you keep him holy and separate and set apart, and you revere him even in the things that you say and and how you make oaths. We could go another one further. How about down in chapter 6, verse 1? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then Jesus deals with the externals that the Pharisees do for the next several verses that don't deal with the internals, which is an issue of lying. It's hypocrisy. So it's no surprise that we find the same commandments in what Jesus is dealing with. It would make sense. He's going to deal with what the Jews would recognize as most important. How about one more? Um, You shall not lay up treasures in heaven, no other gods before you. Down in verse 19, don't lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Let's go down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve, read, love, worship, be devoted to, God and another God. Only one. And that's an issue of having no other gods before you. So it would make sense that Jesus would give his commission to his church and that would fit in line with the greatest commandment to love God and to love others. So if you are alive and breathing as a human being, there's a moral imperative that you respond to the greatest commandment. If you stand up and you say, I love Jesus and I follow him, even if you're not part of a church, there is a moral imperative that you would respond to how he has taken this greatest commandment and he's made it fit into something smaller. Here's how you'll fulfill this as a believer alive on earth. What if we went a step further? What if we said we can take that same imperative in the greatest commandment 
What if we can push it into the purpose of the local church? Let's go to 1 Timothy 3. In 1 Timothy 3, there's a recognized mission statement or purpose of the church. If the church were this singular organization with a headquarters somewhere and you were to walk in, you would see it written up above in stencil letters behind the secretary or the person who would greet you at the door. We're in verse 14 and 15. Paul says to Timothy, I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you, the sum of this letter, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay, so we're all on the same page. Uh, These are pillars and buttresses. We probably all know what pillars are. On the top right, you've got the Lincoln Memorial. Pillar obviously holds the weight. Uh, Before, we had long expanses of wood that could be manufactured in the form of beams, and before we were able to deal with metal like iron and create structure, or steel, I should say. Um, There was this issue when you would build this really large building, like the one on the lower right, which is the Cathedral of the Flying Buttresses, you had to find a way to manage all the open space. If you're just dealing with a vertical structure, then it's fine for you to have pillars. But anytime the expanse opens, like in this church, we have frame above, a frame above the church building here because gravity's pushing down, the walls are pushing out, but the A-frame is holding it together up above. But you can't do that when you can't build trusses out of wood or out of steel. And so you have to come up with a different way. And that's what a buttress is. A buttress takes the outward force that's pushed on the external walls and it anchors it in a certain way that enables it to stay up, which is why if you were to go to this place or if you were to go to the Sistine Chapel or if you were to go to St. John's Basilica or St. Peter's Basilica and you would notice how high and wide the ceiling is, it's able to be that way because the external structure is holding it up. Paul is saying, this is what the church does. It is a pillar, wall, and buttress, external support of the truth. That means we should find in this statement, or in this letter rather, we should find the great commandment and the great commission squeezed down into something that you and I, as members of a church, which is who he was writing to through Timothy, Timothy's in Ephesus, we should find the same concept or idea if the theory that I have is correct. And I'm trying to show and prove to that. So where do we find love God, and love others. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as is good for the foundation of the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So they are not to set their hopes on riches. That kind of sounds like what Jesus talked about in Matthew, doesn't it? You cannot serve both God and money. And so there's this idea of setting hope on God, not on things. There's the greatest commandment, thankfully, showing up here in 1 Timothy. But did you notice as I continued, 
They're not to set their hopes on riches. Verse 18, they are to rather be rich in good works, to be generous with this rich, the richness that they have, and to be ready to share. There is loving other people. Oftentimes in Christianity, we talk about whether or not it's okay to be monetarily wealthy. No, it is not. It is wrong to be monetarily wealthy and to withhold that wealth and only keep it for yourself. That is love of self. Just like it is wrong to have an abundance of time and to only use your time for your own pursuits and desires. Just like it's wrong to have an abundance of anything, which is a gift that God has given you, we see here in 1 Timothy as a means of sharing with others so that we can communicate the goodness of God, fulfilling the moral obligation of the greatest commandment to love God and to love others. And one more cherry here for you. What if we could find bits and pieces of the Ten Commandments hidden inside here? Not like hidden like it's a mystery, but we should find it, right? Because if everything's coming back to love God and love others, and the Ten Commandments fits nicely in there, and Jesus said everything fits underneath there, when we find bits and pieces of the Ten Commandments in Jesus' teaching, or at least he's dealing with them, it would make sense that if Jesus, his teaching is in line with God's, which is the Old Testament, and Paul's teaching is in line with Jesus, since he's a follower and he stood up and said, I'll obey that great commission, we should find the same idea there. So here are statements that Timothy makes, or Paul makes in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Why don't you go ahead and turn there? Paul says in, um, in chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the sound words, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up. And I'm linking that idea, the sound words, back with what Paul says here in chapter 1, in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Let's skip over the next verse and a half. And he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so there I'm linking in chapter six, this concept of teach and urge these things, whatever accords with sound doctrine with back here. Look at what he lists in verse nine and 10. The lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. There's no other gods. Don't take God's name in vain. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, and do not lie. It would make sense, right? That if what Paul tells Timothy the church ought to be doing fits in line with the Ten Commandments, it, it would make sense because we find fulfillment of loving God and loving others. It should be this strand that we see through all of whatever book we're going to open up. We're going to find fulfillment of the moral imperative to love God and to love others. So if you are alive and breathing as a human being, you have a moral imperative to love God and to love others. Not because you have to, but because God's love is so good. It is better than homemade tomato sauce. It's better than cheesecake. It's better than anything you can come up with. If you are a person who stands up and says, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I will take what he has provided for me. You have a moral imperative in that greatest commandment pushed and squeezed into the great commission to love God and love others by going 
making disciples, and by teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. But a step further, if you are a part of a local church, maybe it's not ours, maybe you're watching and and maybe your church isn't meeting, but if you are a part of a local church, now that bit has been squeezed even further down into the imperative for the church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that's not like stand for truth, do what's right. That's like stand for truth, love Jesus, love God, and love other people. That is the moral imperative that we have as human beings, as people who have said, I'm a Christian, and as those who are part of a local church. There's me pushing in again. Here's a quote I'd like to share with you. God is not trying to produce successful Christian business people who can impress the world with their money and influence. He's not trying to fashion successful church leaders who can influence people with their organizational and administrative skills. That's not me. He is not trying to fashion great orators who can move people with persuasive words. Rather, he wants to reproduce in his followers the character of his son, his love, his kindness, his compassion, his holiness, his humility, his unselfishness, his servant attitude, his unwilling or sorry, his willingness to suffer wrongfully, his ability to forgive, and so much more that characterized his life on earth. That's not something reserved for a few select people, those who have the right degree or who have been voted on being a certain position or for those who are super spiritual. That's not the case. He wants people living in contexts where life happens and it's messy and disgusting. He wants farmers. He wants businessmen. He wants mail deliverers. He wants retired people. He wants children. He wants dog and cat owners. He wants people in various contexts to proclaim his glory by being so satisfied in him that they can't help but love him and love other people. So let me give you some tools practically so I don't press into you and just then leave you because I don't want you to be flailing again. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So I've been working on some stuff. I'll talk more about them next week, but let me just throw out a little of them or a little bit of them that are available today. So Jeremy mentioned there is a place you can put a prayer request online, but also there used to be prayer bulletins that were put out. Those are now going to be moved to online. So if you would like to be somebody who loves God and loves others by praying for this body and praying for the various needs that we have through all the contexts that we have in relationship, then you can be a part of the email list. Shoot me an email. Even do it right now if you want. Michael at, uh, sorry, I don't remember my own, mbcverona.org. And, uh, and I will make you a part of the email list so it will just auto-populate and send out to you. And that will probably be sent out every Thursday in anticipation for the weekend or might do it every Sunday. But that will be a way that you can practically care for people. And that's on there today. If you go on today, you can find, if you're a part of the members-only section, go to our website, click on the members-only, get access in there. You'll see this is up there right up top. There are a couple ways to pray. Second, um, we are going to do a church-wide Bible reading. And we read this resource um, a couple, sorry, people online, you haven't seen me for a little bit. Here's my face, but then nice to see you. I'm going to put you back up again. Okay. So uh, we read this at a church we were at before. It's so helpful. It is inside week by week, a way through the Bible. And each section has a paragraph at the start for the week's readings. And then each day's readings has another paragraph. So if you're one of those people who says, I can't stand 
getting to Deuteronomy just drives me bonkers. Or maybe you're like, yeah, I like poetry, but Psalms, maybe this is a lot. This will help you merge things together. And what I'm hoping this this does is since we can't be together as a church physically, this is another way for us to tie together spiritually so that we can relationally be engaging one another. And as I'll talk about next week, taking the word and bringing it to bear on people's lives, which is what is at the end of the section that Jeremy read today from Ephesians 1.16 or 4.16. Taking the word and bringing it to bear on people's lives is a real primary and significant way that we show love to one another, that we love God and we love others. And so these are here. There's a box over there. They are um, $7.50. And I would love, we would love for everyone to get one. Uh, Maybe you just want to go with one for your family. That's fine. But we have extras. And if you're somebody who can't afford it, then we have one for you and we have ample numbers of these. So please pick one up today or next week. If you would like one of these and you can't make it here, also email me or email Jeremy and we will drop them off to you this week or next week so that you have them. We're going to start this on the 6th. Tied to this, we're pushing this one the hardest. Tied to this is also fighter verses, which you can see up there. And if you're unfamiliar with fighter verses, you can pull out your phone, go to the app store or go to uh, Google Play Store and look for fighter verses and you will find this there. I think it's three bucks and we're going to be doing this together. They've got five years worth of Bible verses to memorize and we're going to be embarking on verse one or year one, sorry, that's also going to start on the 6th of September. And this is another way for us to stay connected. Nobody's going to be holding your feet to the fire. It's just if this is something you want to jump on board with, go ahead and do that. And then lastly, also starting on the 6th, but really there's going to be a lot of these that just take place between now and then, or maybe even afterwards. We would love for you to be gathering together in smaller groups where you can meet in people's homes, where you can engage one another on serious and significant topics that we might cover in something like an adult discipleship hour. And if you would get together and do something like do family worship at home, if you have kids, or I'll be leading a group that's going to be looking into biblical soul care also, which is known as biblical counseling. If you want to get together and go through a book about the spiritual disciplines, maybe a group of three or four of you can do that. You can do it digitally. Maybe you can gather together and do it. Or if you would like to know how to disciple people, we've got resources that we can get into your hands in all these categories. Maybe you want to read about somebody and what they have done. This was a book that you see there, The Evidence Not Seen in the lower right-hand column. A lady by the name of Darlene Dibler-Rose. She's actually, she's passed away, but she's from Iowa. Um, Boone, if you know Iowa which is up by Ames, and she was a missionary during World War II. Um, she moved overseas with her husband shortly after marriage, and wow, uh, ministry did not happen the way that she had expected it to happen. Uh, I really appreciated this book earlier this year when I read it. Maybe you want to get together and read about some saints who have gone before us. Um, we would love for that to happen because that's going to build relationships and context and give us an opportunity to be engaging one another. We have lots of resources. We would love to give them to you. As I said in the letter that I sent out, I'm free to you. I mean, kind of, not really, but for some of you, I'm totally free to you. Uh, I've got resources that I would love to share with you. I would be glad to walk through it with you if you're uncertain about it. I'll talk about this more next week. Let me just say quickly, maybe you're a parent and you're uncertain about doing something like family worship. I just gave you two tools today that will really easily fit in 
reading the Bible. I even gave you, I'm providing something for you to read, or not I. We're providing something for you to read together and a verse to memorize. And I'll talk about more ways next week that we have other resources that we can share with you and leverage together as a body to be fulfilling this moral obligation that we have. Not because we have to, but because God is so good and we get to. Let's pray and then we'll sing one more song. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is who he says he is, that he is holy, that he is worthy. We thank you that we can trust his words because of his deity, because of who he is. He's you, God. He is God. And I pray that as the next several weeks come towards us, as we think about moving out of vacation slash summer season and back into the, the grind of school, I've got to pray that you would give us opportunities as a church to be connecting in ways that we haven't. And COVID has put barriers in the way, significant and serious ones. But God, we can still be loving you and loving others. That's the beauty of these commands, this moral imperative. It's like you really don't have to have a perfect ideal in order to do it. You can do it in all contexts. You can love God in all of life and whatever comes. And you can love others. God, so we pray that you would be working in this body. For those of us who have maybe gotten a little bit complacent, maybe we've disengaged and taken advantage of the fact that it's been nice and easy. God, would you push us back into a life that you promise provides joy and hope and change. Maybe for some of us, it's hard. It is difficult to try to do ministry with masks on and to meet together in limited numbers. You're always trying to figure out, am I inside? Am I outside? Am I bothering somebody else because I have a mask on? Am I not bothering them because, or am I bothering them because I don't have a mask on? That's okay. God, we can walk into this mess and you're big enough to help us manage it and handle it and walk through it. Maybe we're going to tick somebody off. Maybe they'll give, that'll give us an opportunity to talk to them about it. And maybe we might walk away from that experience considering them closer than we were before and more able to speak into their world and love them and care for them than we were before. God, use this mess of life to bring about your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.